pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we, we know that it's cold in this building, we, but we pray that your word will warm our hearts. That we may say with the disciples on the road of Emmaus, as they have said, did not our hearts burn when the Lord spoke to us in a way? For I desire to speak your word and nothing else, so that your name will be glorified and your people will be edified. In the precious name of Christ we pray. And everyone say amen. I have to tell you, I was a bit stuck initially at the brevity of this passage from our preaching assignment. But the more I studied these verses, the more I plumbed the depth of these verses, I was struck by the riches of this application for my life and the implications for the church. And the more I understood the value that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God may be equipped for every good work. You see, there is something in that greeting. You see, most people tend to rapidly read over these greetings and salutations in an attempt to get to the real meat of the word or the next book. But in hurrying past these, these uh, personal greetings is to miss the essential and practical truths that are embedded in this epistle. You see, they were very important to Paul and his original readers. And as we reflect on them and apply them to our lives, they are important to us. It's quite easy to overlook this greeting section of Paul's letter as something that's tacked on the tail end of this epistle. Oh, this is just Paul's customary remarks, simply the way he concludes most of his letters. Paul's greetings is just a simple a compilation of names and closing remarks, nothing spectacular. And yet that mindset couldn't be further from the truth. There's so many rich jewels in this greeting that it would take us the next two weeks to unpack them. But we're going to close out the book today, amen? We're not going to take two weeks to do that. No worries. Paul chooses his words carefully. He was very intentional and specific in his greeting. There, there are some profound things I noticed as I was studying this passage in this closing greeting. As we bring this book to a close, there are five things we learn as a church. The first thing, greetings are given. Number two, a church is gathered. Number three, scripture is read. Number four, a stewardship is encouraged. And number five, a supplication is remembered. There is something in that greeting. Let me give you the first one. Greetings are given. Look at verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers in, at Laodicea. You see, Paul opens most of his epistles with this special Christian greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. He also concludes some of his letters with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you or with your spirit, as we see in 1 Corinthians. He directs his greetings to be given to various persons who co-labor with him in gospel ministry, and yet he sends these greetings from those who are with him. You see, there was nothing superficial about greeting one another. It had substance. It was common in Hebrew culture to greet a person or a stranger by washing their feet and providing a meal to eat. You practice hospitality in the first century. Greeting is not a mere practice that we engage in. It is a mindset that we embrace. We're not just uh, uh, waiting for a few individuals standing at the door, welcoming people to enter into the service. We thank God for our ushers, but the onus is not on the ushers. It's on everyone in the church. All of us. 
You see, it is the habit of our hearts to cultivate a culture of greeting one another. Everybody is joyfully greeting one another. It's an affectionate practice that we engage in as believers. Visitors should feel the warmth of our love coming from all of us, not just a few of us or several in here. It is not surprising that this very practice of greeting included a holy kiss in most cases. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, for obvious reasons, we're not certainly going to go around kissing one another. And yet there is something special about the eye contact and the handshake and the fist bump and the side hug, or I call it the church hug, and the elbow to elbow, because we're in the midst of a pandemic, if that's your thing. Greeting is not only practical, it is special. You see, there's nothing cliche about greeting one another. There was something affectionate about this greeting. Greet, give my greetings to the brothers. The reason this greeting is so special is because of who it is addressed to. Brothers here can be translated, because it's in a gender neutral, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how most translations should read. In fact, Paul opens this letter with a kind of greeting that he expects would be carried out on his behalf. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We share a common bond in Christ because of God is our Heavenly Father. Paul elsewhere said that let us do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. See, we ought to be giving one another another five-star treatment, not because we deserve it, but because of who we belong to. So even though Paul never met these believers in person, He had such an affinity for them, and he affirmed them in the beginning of this letter. He affirmed his love for them and reminded them that he is constantly praying for them. You see, greeting is not only special, but it's also a gift that we give each other whenever we gather. And Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Christ. See, we we, we are not independent individuals. We are interdependent. We're deeply connected spiritually. We chase after one another to care for each other. We're tied together by Christ. And guess what? You couldn't get away from me even if you tried. You can move hundreds of miles away. I will see you in glory in heaven if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen? We are one body in Christ. Every member needing all the other members in Christ. Look at your neighbor and say, I need you. Don't be afraid. Say it. I need you. You're sitting next to your family. Come on, you can do it. Despite our differences in culture, ethnicity, preferences, economic or political, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are kindred. We're kinfolk. (laughs) That means something. My wife and I have been blessed by two couples in this church based on their greeting to us. One couple generously volunteered to host my family while we were in between homes, selling our house and purchasing a new home. I won't mention their names. And just this past week, actually last Sunday, um, we experienced yet another 
extraordinary greeting of hospitality from a, a wonderful couple in this church. I won't say their names. Praise God that as we were purchasing our new home, we had to have some work done in the house. And we had to be out of the house for two and a half, actually one and a half weeks. And so we're thinking, like, where are we going to stay? Airbnb is, is going to cost too much money for that long. We don't know what we're going to do. We're not going to stay at a hotel. So we'll split the time between my two brothers. And then as I'm having a conversation, greeting my brother Paul, a sister walks up, greets Paul, and, and, and she, she goes to greet him, and she's so short, and Paul is so tall, she goes to grab him and greet him. So I was looking forward to greeting you, brother. I'm praying for you. And then she turned to me and she said, how's it going with the transition into the new home? I said, everything is doing, going great. We have to pretty much be out of the house for a week and a half. She said, oh, that's interesting. You know, we actually, uh, uh, we're going to be going out of town on Thursday. You're welcome to stay at our house. The whole house is yours. Well, you know, I wasn't going to turn down that offer. <laughs> so I said, well, thank God for you. And so once she confirmed with her husband, uh, we were invited, and this, this is how we were greeted. When we entered into their home on that Thursday evening, they greeted us with a dinner. I was like, this is incredible. Then their son gave me the key and said, this is the spirit key. This is where you can find it. This is how you operate the things in the house. Feel free to pick any room you like to stay in. Uh, any room you're welcome to be in, just enjoy yourself. This, the home is yours until we return. All the way until next Friday. And we're thinking, wow, you're talking about practicing hospitality. The scripture talks about be given to hospitality. That's hospitality 101. It doesn't get any better than that. So I thank God for, for this couple and and I know my wife and my kids, we enjoy the space. You heard him? <laughs> Judah, he's, he's enjoying the space. He loves it. He can run all over the house until we're back in our home. And then it's going to be a riot. You see, that's, that's greeting our brothers with a true greeting. That's going above and beyond the call of duty. Not just, how are you doing, my brother and sister? No, no, really, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a long time. How can I serve you? How can I be praying for you? Imagine if all of us began to participate in that practice of greeting one another in that way. How can I be praying for you? How can I be supporting you? Well, how can I serve you? That's a different kind of mindset than just saying, hello, how are you? You see, a church, we, we, we participate in greeting. The greetings are giving. Number two, a church is gathered. Look at verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house, the church in her house. Now, that tell, what does that tell us about Nympha? A church gathered in her house. We know very little about this woman, Nympha. She is only mentioned one time in Scripture, as is the case for many of Paul's co-laborers in gospel ministry. But Paul thought it was worthy enough and deserving enough to make mention of this woman in this greeting. The same way that he does with Phoebe and Priscilla and Eunea. Godly women who co-labor with Paul by hosting churches in their homes. Incredible godly women co-laboring with the Apostle Paul in ministry. You see, the early church didn't just, they didn't have buildings like many churches do today. Jesus' followers would be gathered into each other's home, tried to imagine all of us in a cozy living room, maybe having a or sharing a meal together while this letter is being read. 
It's not unusual to have churches meeting in homes. In fact, that's where the church was birthed. It was in the upper room where Paul, where uh, actually Peter and the other apostles were gathered with other believers, 120 in number, when the Spirit of God descended on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus inaugurated his church in a home setting. And if you read further down in Acts chapter 2, it says, and day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The church met in homes, much like we do as we gather as community groups in our homes. But the question is now, what is the church? What's the nature and purpose of the church? Well, it's funny that you should ask that question. Thank you for asking. You know, that the church doesn't belong to itself. The church is identified as the body of Christ, where Jesus Christ is the head of the body as we see in the first chapter of this letter. The church is where we gather as believers, and in the Greek, the word is ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. Good job. It means the called out ones. The church is where we live out the one another's in community. Forgiving one another, greeting one another, loving one another. Being patient with one another. Listen to this beautiful biblical description of the nature and purpose of a local church from the ESV Systematic Study Bible. And as you listen to this biblical definition of church, let your heart be enraptured and engulfed in worship. Just listen to the words here. The church is the redeemed communion of saints, bought by the blood of Christ, universal and invisible, incorporating all believers throughout all ages, those on earth and those in heaven. The church is the adopted family of God, once slaves to sin, but now brought into a loving relationship with God as Father and each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to be rejoicing. The church is the body of Christ, having him as the head, dependent on him, gifted by his Holy Spirit, crafted as unity with diversity, reliant on one another, functioning as Christ's instruments in the world. The church is the bride of Christ, particularly loved by him, saved by his sacrificial work on the cross, exclusively devoted to him, and increasingly adorned in beauty for him, the bridegroom. The church is the temple of the Spirit, filled with the fullness of Christ, marked by God's presence. The church is the new humanity, composed of Jewish and Gentile Christians, united in Christ, and demonstrating the way life was always supposed to be lived. The church is the branches that abide in the true vine, that is Christ, in union with him and dependent on him. The church is the gathered covenant community, regularly coming together for worship, communion, baptism, discipleship, fellowship, ministry, and mission. The church is the kingdom community, existing in the already and the not yet, living out God's eternal purpose of cosmic unity for all God's Glory, that is the church. And even how as fascinating and towering this biblical description of church is, it's not perfect. We're striving for perfection, no doubt. And if you're looking for a per perfect church, don't join it because you might mess it up. A perfect church does not exist. It will in the future, though. The church, therefore, is not a place. Hello, somebody. 
I know you said this morning, and I said it too, I got to get up and go to church. But you can't really get up and go to church. You can get up and go to a building where a church gathers. You are the church. Look around you. If this building is empty, guess what? This is not a church. This is a building that houses a church, but we are the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a location. The church is not even a denomination. We who are God's people, we are the church of Jesus Christ. Not only is a church gathered, but thirdly, Scripture is read. Look at verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Today, the average believer has at least have perhaps four to five Bibles in their possession. Matter of fact, let me test that out real quick. How many Bibles? Uh, if you have more than two Bibles, raise your hand. If you, have, you own more than two Bibles. If you own more than three Bibles, raise your hand. If you own more than four Bibles, raise your hand. If you own more than six Bibles, raise your hand. Oh, okay. Woo, geez, those hands are... How about seven? How about eight? Okay, oh, look at this guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stop right here, okay, because it's getting out of control. It is interesting that today you may have all these copies of the Bible, but if you were living back in that time, you would have zero possession of the Scriptures. Unless you were wealthy, you were a scribe or an apostle. So the early church received this letter much like this one. One person would simply read the letter out and everyone else would listen in this cozy living room. There were no printers back then. And it was expensive and time-consuming to have something uh, copied by hand. So you wouldn't be able to get your own copy of this. This letter was weighty. The only way you could hear or read it would have been to gather with other Jesus followers to hear and discuss it together. Today, we are blessed to have multiple copies of Scripture. There are people in third world countries, believers, that will be persecuted, even killed for having possession of a copy of Scripture. We have several copies. I'm not going to tell you how many copies I have. You see, the public reading of Scripture in the first century was so essential to the local church that Paul, in his first epistle to the Thessalonians, he wrote rather forcefully, I put you under oath before the Lord that you have this letter read to all the brothers. Whoa. You put me on there. Oh, what kind of letter is this? And again, in writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, he exhorts, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You see, when this letter is read, we come under its authority. The call to have this letter read in public and have its impact beyond the immediate audience points to the weightiness of this letter. This is not any old letter. This imperative to have the letter read in public and then circulated to other churches clearly points to Paul's apostolic authority. Paul is not writing his own message, but stands as an apostle to represent or relay God's message. This is scripture, Paul is saying. This is the complete, authoritative, unadulterated, living word of God. This is the pure gospel that Paul preached and wrote. Paul viewed his own letter as the word of God. He knew that his words were God's very words. 
Just listen to how he began the letter in chapter 1 of this epistle by emphasizing how these believers heard the word of truth from Epaphras, his beloved brother. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You see, Epaphras was carrying the very living, breathing word of God. Not only do we come under God's authority when the word of God is read, when scripture is read, we experience the living, transforming power of the word. There is something in that greeting. There's something so refreshing, so cleansing when we read God's word. The means by which God sanctifies men and women and children, setting them apart as his own people, is the word of truth. God transforms us through his word. The word of God is a fire that burns away dross. In Jeremiah 23, it's a hammer that breaks stony hearts in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 9. It's rain that waters the crops in Isaiah chapter 55. It's milk that nourishes spiritual babies, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It's food that feeds the hungry, Hebrews chapter 5. It's a sword that pierces the heart and battles the devil, Hebrews 4 and Ephesians 6. It's gold that enriches us, Psalm 19, verse 10. It's a mirror that shows us our true selves, James chapter 1. It's a lamp that illuminates our path, Psalm 119. And yes, the Word of God is all of these things and much more. And as a church, we are committed to the public reading of Scripture. We read Scripture right before we preach Scripture. One of the many beauties of, of reading Scripture in public is the variety of ways that we can read it for all it's worth. There is interpretive reading, reading whereby you're reading the letter in the same manner and the way in which it was written. There's expositional reading. There's responsive reading, call and response. There's one-on-one -on -one reading. There is expressive reading. And all of it is reading in community with one another. You see, we experience the living, transforming power of reading God's word in public. When Scripture is read, we understand, though, who it is pointing to. Reading Scripture was a common practice back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are numerous examples of Scriptures being read in public. I don't have time to go through those. But in the New Testament, take, for example, notice what happens when Jesus stood up to read the New Testament in Luke chapter 4. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth and when he had been, where he had been brought up. And it was his custom, as it was, that when he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. It was a scroll. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and handed, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And the Bible says the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And they began to say to, he began to say to them as he was sitting down, and their eyes were fixated on him. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words 
that were coming from his mouth. They were just sitting there looking at him. Who is this? He's the living, breathing word of God. You see, when we read scripture, if the reading scripture is not leading you to fix your eyes on Jesus, then you might not be reading it the right way. For all scripture is a signpost pointing to him. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus began with the Old Testament and taught all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, God, God's word predicts, it prepares us for, reflects on, and or results from the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, when we read the scriptures, do we simply just see words, or do we see him? See, we cannot escape the colossal portrait of Christ in Colossians. Christ fills every page of this letter with his glorious presence. His supreme person and work course through this letter like blood in our veins. We are created by him and made for him. We're sustained by him, redeemed by his blood, buried into his death, made alive by his resurrection, forgiven by his grace, reconciled by his cross, forgiven by his grace, transported into his kingdom, indwelt by his Holy Spirit made members of his church. We're called to walk in Christ, be rooted in Christ, set our minds on Christ, put on Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Paul infers here, just in case I miss anything, in chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Not only is scripture read, but his stewardship is encouraged. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you receive in the Lord. You know, I find it quite interesting that the Apostle Paul takes time to speak of Tychicus in affectionate terms. This boy, Tychicus, a faithful forerunner and minister, a beloved brother. Then he moves on to Onesimus to give him props for being a faithful, beloved brother and highlights Aristarchus as his fellow inmate. This is the kind of friend that was loyal to him, who went to war with him. Aristarchus was one of Paul's travel companions who took a hit in a riot in the book of Acts when a riot broke out. He commends a guy named Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who bailed out on him during a missionary journey, but was eventually restored to good faith. He highlights these men along with Jesus, who has called justice as a comfort to him. Then he gives a more detailed commendation for Epaphras as a servant of Christ. He then highlights Demas, who also abandoned him, by the way, but eventually was restored. Then he cites his traveling companion, Luke. He even makes mention of this godly woman, Nympha, in the church in her house. Paul recognizes the faithfulness of these co-workers in gospel ministry, but when he comes to Archippus, he says to him, See to it that you fulfill the ministry that you receive in the Lord. He admonishes him. Why does he single out Archippus? Why single him out? You see, it wasn't unusual for Paul to single out individuals calling attention to the issue that they struggle with. Appellus in Romans chapter 16, verse 10, must have struggled with uh, approval since Paul writes, Greet Appellus, who is approved in Christ. But aren't all of those mentioned in that 
chapter 16 approved in Christ? Yes. But evidently, Apelles had a greater need to hear it. Paul also affirms others working hard and risking their lives. Rufus is, is, is reminded that he is chosen in the Lord. Perhaps Rufus struggled with assurance. And likewise, Archippus felt discouraged about ministry. And, and, and Paul takes time to write this note to admonish him to keep going, man. Don't give up. Listen. Pastors and ministry leaders get discouraged too. We're not immune. A mother wakes up her son one morning and says, Honey, it's time to get up and get ready for church. The son replies, Mom, I'm not going to church today. The mother persisted, But you have to go to church. The son responded again, I don't want to go to church, Mom. The mother said, you need to go. You need to get up. The son said, why? The mother said, I'll give you three reasons why you ought to be going to church. Number one, you're always glad you're gone when you do get up and go. Number two, you're 50 years old. You don't need me to remind you to get up and go to church. And number three, you're the pastor. <sighs> okay, mom, you're right. I don't know what kind of ministry that Archippus had. Paul, Paul doesn't make mention of that exactly. But Archie knew. I'm just calling him Archie here. Most likely it was related to gospel mission. Paul spends the majority of this greeting commending those who are on gospel mission with him. And in his last known letter, Paul exhorts his young disciple Timothy be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do you know the ministry that God is calling you to? Or maybe you don't quite know it yet. You may not realize it, but if you are saved, guess what? You've been called to ministry. I know you're looking at me funny, Mr. Pastor Rick Dodd. I'll be honest with you, that's for you pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers, but that's not for me. Guess what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been called into the ministry, right? Maybe not as a full-time pastor or minister of the gospel, but you've been called into the ministry. Everyone has a specific ministry. God could be calling you to a homeless shelter to minister to people in need, or the prison ministry, or a nursing home. He might be calling you into promised kingdom. Amen? It got quiet. Church got quiet. Or the audio and sound ministry, or even the greeters ministry. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift, and every believer should be involved in some level of ministry. That's how God uses you and us to, to minister to the rest of the Bible. Maybe you have a heart to connect with visitors. Well, we need that kind of ministry here. If that's you, if you have a heart for that, approach one of the pastors after the service. We would love to, to resurrect that guest reception. Come to us if you have a heart for it. We need that ministry. You see, your gift, is not meant to prop, your, your gift is not simply meant to profit you, but to the entire body. Your gift is not for selfish pur purposes. Your gift is not an end in and of itself, but a means to an end. Your spiritual gift is not merely for your enjoyment. Certainly you will enjoy serving with your spiritual gift, but it is for your employment. Your spiritual gift is a tool, not a toy. It is to bless the body of Christ. Peter tells us that every Christian has a spiritual gift and that we are stewards of this grace of God. In a, in a general sense, all of us have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. All of us are carriers of the good news. 
all of us are citizens of God's kingdom and all of us are ambassadors for the king. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you receive in the Lord. It might be hard. There might be sleepless nights. People are going to talk about you behind your back. You can't control that. You can't please everyone. Satan might tempt you to throw in a towel, but don't give up or give in. Just do it, like Nike. See to it that you fulfill your ministry. Let me caution you, though. You are fulfilling the ministry that you have received in the Lord. If God has called you to it, he will equip you with power to do it. You can tweak that. In a very real way, this is not a ministry that you are doing for God. It is something that God does in and through you for his glory. God works salvation in us, but we work it out by the Holy Spirit. God is, God's will is not something that we have to do. It is something that we get to do. Certainly, we do have to do it. But even more, we get to do it. Stewardship is an act of organizing your life so that God can spin you. Let me say that one more time. Stewardship is an act or the act of organizing your life so that God can spin you. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable act of worship. This is your logical worship. This just makes sense. Therefore, my beloved, just as you always obey, so now, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You and I are working in tandem with God through his Holy Spirit. Yet remember, remember this. Jesus already accomplished. He already did what you could never do. His grace is what enables you to do it. And in fulfilling your ministry, he's called you to look to Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment. Lean on his Holy Spirit. Draw from the reservoirs of God's endless supply of grace here. Remember that even fulfilling your ministry, the ministry that God has entrusted to you, you're working in cooperation with him in Christ. You see, Paul put in his time for the gospel, not as a long ranger and not as a self-salvation project, he was very conscious of God at work in him. In fact, uh, the way Paul closes his first chapter in this letter conveys that understanding. Paul had a stewardship from God that he had to fulfill. He says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works Within me. Let me elaborate a bit more, just in case you might be tempted to dismiss my struggle, Paul infers. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who have not seen me face to face. It's not me, Paul is saying. It's his energy that he's powerfully working within me. Each of us have been given a limited stewardship of time and energy. How much of it are we spending or expending on that one thing that's most important when it comes to serving in ministries, the ministry that God has called you to? You see, in the Lord signals that he ha this has to do with gospel work, and the appeal echoes Paul's description of his own calling as a minister according to the stewardship that is from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Not only is it a, a stewardship encouraged here, but lastly, a supplication is remembered. 
if Timothy so far has been functioning as a Paul's secretary to whom he dictates the letter, as we see here, Paul now takes the, the pen, the ink pen, and then signs his own name, stressing the authenticity and affection for these believers. He says, Paul, I write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You see, Paul stated that he was an ambassador in chains. And city after city, the Apostle Paul was badmouthed, blacklisted, abandoned, beaten, bound, and bruised, and booted out of town for preaching that Jesus was the crucified Savior and the risen Lord. Paul's message was matched with his manner of life. He suffered like his Lord, and his suffering personally and vividly uh, illustrates his preaching about salvation through Christ's suffering. For Paul, this is personal. This is a prayer of supplication. On one level, Paul is soliciting prayers from the saints. He is not asking for anyone to throw him a pity party. If you notice earlier in this chapter, in verse 2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it, with it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. You see, on another level, he's encouraging those who might be battling with discouragement and trials. Archie, remember this. Whatever you're going through, be encouraged, bro. I know it's hard, but I'm in chains for the gospel. Paul is chained to Roman soldiers in a dungeon cell by the time he is writing this letter. And although he is chained, he is really tethered to Christ as a bondservant. And although Paul is in prison, the gospel is not chained. Remember here is in a present imperative calling for this to be a habitual remembrance, not just for the moment in time. This call is the recall, not a sad plea to feel sympathy for Paul, but it was a call to remember Jesus. In fact, elsewhere he wrote, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Paul had a record because of his relationship with Jesus. He was doing hard time because of his devotion to Jesus. But the word of God is not bound, he says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It was Mother Teresa who said, no one thinks of the pen while reading the letter. They only want to know the mind of the person who wrote the letter. That's exactly what I am in God's hand, a little pencil. That was Paul. He was a little pencil in the hands of the creator as when he wrote this letter. The call to remember Paul's chains was a call to remember Christ. That's why he was incarcerated in the first place. Paul closes this, this epistle with a brief benediction. Grace be with you. How fitting of a close. The Apostle Paul opens this letter with grace and he closes it with grace. We dare not do anything apart from God's grace. That marvelous and infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe in him. My question to you as I close do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you ready to be greeted by the Savior to enter into his kingdom? And if you cannot answer that in the affirmative, I want to challenge you and I want to make an appeal to you. If you're watching this recording online when it's uploaded, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, 
I like to say this. I'd rather have Jesus and not need him than to need him and not have him. Are you ready to enter into his kingdom? One of the criminals who hung there when Jesus was dying on the cross mustered up enough oxygen in his lungs by the way which was given to him by the creator. He mustered up enough oxygen in his lungs to insult Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Come down from here if you're Christ, the Son of God. But the other criminal rebuked the man, saying, do you not even fear God since you are under the same condemnation? We're up here because we deserve to be up here. This man has done nothing wrong. And that thief who had made that confession in that moment looked at Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him, suffering on that cross, and said, today you will be with me in paradise because you believe in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. And we thank you for the warmth of your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will take the words that have been preached in our hearing and plant it in our hearts, Lord. Transform our souls. We desire every time that we wrestle through the pages of this holy Bible, Lord God, that we would not just see words, but that we would see Christ. For all scripture is pointing to him. Father, all for the glory of your name and the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone say amen.